0: Hey folks, this is John coming to you from the Head of the Bed, a podcast for the anesthesia community. We're back with Dr. Tim Fitzgerald in the final show of a three-part series on enhanced recovery programs. In part one, we discussed the background of quality initiatives in healthcare and the history of the development of ERAS. Part two covered ERAS from the preoperative phase through postoperative care with special attention for the implications for anesthesia providers. And now in this final episode in the series, We unpack the concepts of frailty in the perioperative surgical home. Uh, I introduced Dr. Fitzgerald in the first couple of episodes, but in case you've uh, missed those podcasts, I want to let you know that he's a surgical oncologist and the director of surgical oncology at Maine Medical Center and Maine Health. He specializes in complex gastrointestinal surgery and is an expert in enhanced recovery programs, having lectured and published extensively on them and implemented them at other medical centers. So with that, let's get to the podcast. We're back with Dr. Fitzgerald. You've done some really interesting work on frailty and that concept and how that shapes patient selection and outcomes uh, in complex GI cases. Will you tell us a little bit about what is frailty and how does that shape your practice as as a surgeon?
1: Yeah, so frailty has been really interesting to me and it's something I've been thinking about for 20 years. And frailty is physiologic deterioration beyond what is expected for a given age. So, and that's easy to say, and easy to think about it. You, that is that we know that we can take care of older patients who aren't frail, and they're going to do well. And if you looked in the literature, there's hundreds or thousands of publications on, you could put the surgery in there, X, we did X surgery, in patients over 80 or patients over 70 and they did great. And it could be whipple, could be liver resection, could be hip replacement, colorectal surgery. And those papers all have the same caveat. It's always well-selected patients. Or I would say those are non-frail patients, physiologically robust patients. But that's done in a setting where, where we're just giving people the eyeball test. You know, where you kind of look at them and go, yeah, oh, she didn't look frail to me. But my frail is different than somebody else's frail. Yeah. And what what I was really looking for was a tool to understand frailty in an easy way. And over the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's been a lot of research on frailty. But they're involving tools, you know, 80-page questionnaires that take mm. 30 or 40 minutes to fill out and need a wow. complex analysis or some kind of device where you squeeze something and measures your grip strength and combine that with other physiologic measures or measures of of, um, of muscle to bone ratios those sorts of things and to me those just didn't fit into clinical practice the way you know they're great research tools and it's great to show you that what we thought was true that that frail patients don't do well after surgery but then how do you how do you practically measure Frailty in a way that's meaningful—that you can change your practice, um, maybe selecting patients not to have surgery, or addressing frailty before surgery to make the patients less frail, or after surgery recognizing that maybe these patients have higher risks, and perhaps we can mitigate some of those risks. So I was uh, there was a conference call for this society I belong to called the Un- Society of University Surgeons, and it was on frailty, and. Uh, I participated in that conference call, and they really there were two really interesting frailty indices that came mm-hmm. out of that. That I, one was uh, uh, called the modified frailty index, which uh, is a research tool used in a large quality database called NISQIP, and it's a distillation of about seventy or eighty elements in a larger Canadian uh, health and uh, aging. Uh, frailty index. Yeah. Um, and and then the other is something called the risk analysis index. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But the what what I was interested in was to say, okay, I could use this tool, this modified frailty index, to look at the implications of frailty in patients using this large database called the NISQIP database, yeah. which we participate in here. So what I did is I looked at at procedures associated with high risk for mortality and morbidity. Um, the, these are things that are, we know that if you do more of them, patients do better. So that's colorectal surgery, pancreas surgery, esophageal surgery, vascular surgery, coronary bypass graft. And we use this modified frailty index to classify patients as not frail, mildly frail, moderately frail, and severely frail. Yeah. And we found that patients, not surprisingly, you know, it's exactly as you would think, that the more frail patients were more likely to die, they were more likely to have complications, uh, and their length of stay in the hospital was longer. And it was profoundly different, interestingly, for patients having colorectal surgery. That is- Well, the colorectal surgery patients, if you look at non-frail patients, the mortality is less than one. You know, it's about 0.4. if you look at frail patients, the mortality is ten percent.
0: Wow.
1: It's a huge increase. Whereas if you looked at esophageal surgery or pancreas surgery, the mortality rate in the non frail patients is not inconsequential. It's you know, two, three, four percent. That increases up to seven or eight percent in the frail patients, but it doesn't quite read the reach the same level of mortality as colorectal patients.
0: So so a much simpler surgery in terms of physiologic stress yeah. or approach yeah. in a frail patient turns out to be substantially higher correlated with mortality than this more complicated surgery. Yeah. Well, what, how, why is that?
1: I'm, I don't know, but I do know, we looked at that patient population. If you parse out those that have laparoscopic versus open surgeries, the mortality rate for a laparoscopic surgery in a frail patient is about 5%, and it's over 10% if you do that operation open. So you can mitigate the consequences yeah. of that by doing these surgeries minimally invasively. So there is a way to impact it. Um, and then that, that would be, I guess, a laparoscopic colectomy would be more in line with what you would expect for a colectomy. That is the mortality rate for a laparoscopic colectomy in a non-frail patient was about 0.25. Um, and, if you, and that increases to about 5% in frail patients. But if you do that open, all those mortality rates double and all the complication wow. rates double. Wow. Uh, and then so when from there that there's the, and I mentioned this to you before, I think there's the so what of frailty. So you can identify frail patients. So what does that mean? How yeah. does that help my patient or, you know, or the so, choices
0: you make or how you approach that patient?
1: Yeah. So then the, the next idea that we had was around the failure to rescue that is. That's a commonly used quality metric now, meaning that if you have a complication, how are you are you likely to survive or not survive from that complication hmm. and it's used to look at hospitals in general that is high functioning hospitals the failure to rescue rate is high that is if you have a complication you're not as likely to die at a low performing hospital um, and there are lots of variables associated with that and it's something that's looked nationally as a quality metric
0: so say that again a high-performing hospital has a has a Better chance at rescuing patients. Exactly.
1: Yeah. That, which makes sense. So yeah. we thought, well, what about frail patients and failure to rescue? Um, my hypothesis was that frail patients would have different kinds of complications than non frail patients. I thought they'd have more respiratory complications. Yep. Yeah. Um, it turns out that's not true. They have the same kind of complications, they just have them more frequently. Hmm. And the most common complications are cardiovascular. Uh, complications and sepsis, Hmm. regardless of frailty status. And that if you're frail, we found using the same frailty index and the same classification, you're less likely to be rescued. So frail patients are more likely to have common complications than non-frail patients. And when they have them, they're less likely to be rescued.
0: And did you see a difference in in the type of center those patients were at? We didn't look at that
1: level of detail. I think that would be interesting, you would expect. Although you never you oftentimes you don't find what you expect, right? Yeah. But you would expect that low performing hospitals would rescue those frail patients less often. And then the, the question is and again it's kind of a so what question. It's interesting to know, but so what? Well, can we change our systems of care for frail patients? Yeah. Can we change how we select patients for surgeries? And what we're doing now is we're looking at this risk analysis index. Now the the modified frailty index is just 10 items that they happen to capture in this database but it's not ideal we're just using it because it's the best we have yeah there's this risk analysis index i think is better it's a prospective frailty tool and what we're using data from our prep center here to look at this risk analysis index and see what does frailty mean in our hospital mm-hmm. and then i've asked the prep center next year after we're done with this enhanced recovery i'm going to ask the that maybe next year for a clinical transformation project, we can look at frailty. And this risk analysis index was rolled out at University of Nebraska, where it was designed. And they implemented it. And what the program involved was just, just looking at the risk analysis index, which is I- interesting to me. What it has is functional medical problems combined with um, ability to perform activities of daily living. So it yeah. asks. It, what gets you points? CHF, stroke with, physio, with um, paralysis or physiologic dysfunction, COPD requiring oxygen, living in a in a facility, uh, and then looks at functional um, functional um, status based on um, ability to dress yourself, ability to toilet, ability to shower, and ability to make your own meals, and puts people on a scale of one to four and whether they need help with those activities to come up with a frailty index. And what they did there is they just, I think they used the number 20, but they just had a frailty cutoff. And if patients were deemed to be frail, they notified the surgeon Hmm. and palliative care to help take care of the patient in the hospital. That was it? That's it. And with that intervention, the mortality rate in the frail patients decreased from 17% to 10%. Wow,
0: a 7% reduction
1: just by not even doing anything, not prehabilitating patients, not selecting patients, just by calling the surgeon saying, hey, Miss Jones, we see she's got a hip on for next week. She's frail. And that, and that was enough.
0: I mean, did, did they look at, interve- I mean, were there measurable interventions that surgeons were doing or just a notification of the surgeon and that's then all, we're getting palliative care involved? That's
1: all, we, that's all they did.
0: Wow. Uh, side note tangent, I love palliative care teams. Big shout out to palliative care teams. Uh, talk for maybe I don't know, 20 seconds. Palliative care is just not about end-of-life care, right?
1: So this is outside of my expertise, but, I, but, but it is not just about end-of-life care. And you know that, we know that in places where palliative care is involved in ICU care, uh, that there is less inappropriate care given. That is, and patients get out of the icu sooner i don't know exactly what what why that is but it is yeah um and i guess because it's about symptom management and setting realistic expectations that helps folks get where they're supposed to be that is you know your wife is on the ventilator and she's unlikely to survive and if she does she's 80 years old and was not was a, using a walker before she came in the hospital maybe even if she does survive this, she's not gonna end up in a place where where she would wanna be. So yeah. maybe that's yeah. part of what palliative care does is sets real ex- expectations. Of. But I, too, am a big fan of palliative care, yeah. even in patients who are not dying. Uh, and then the then the last is, you know, it feeds into this failure to rescue, to me at least. Yeah. And what I'm hoping to do is work with um, the PrEP Center here to incorporate frailty screening. First look at what we have now and see what is frailty mean at this institution. Then work with the PrEP Center to identify frail patients and, and notify surgeons you know, that your patient is frail and maybe that patient who's getting an elective knee will go to, re, go to rehab before that. Um, but maybe we say you know what this patient's got colon cancer. We're gonna operate on that patient because although it has risk, um, that risk is is acceptable because the benefits are high yeah and that but we know that now that patient's got a pneumonia and his pneumonia is more likely to kill him than somebody who's not frail and then right. we change the care pathway for those patients and maybe we get palliative care involved or maybe get respiratory involved or maybe we change the venue of care earlier for a frail patient so I think that it's interesting know, to me frailty is an evolving concept we right. don't know what it means we don't even know how to measure it if you look at all those things that i talked about you know there's this freed frailty matrix the risk analysis index you can look at muscle mass when the psoas is often measured Um, you can look at ability to get up and walk across the room whatever measure you use they're they're they don't overlap hundred percent they all measure slightly different things so i don't know that we we know exactly how to measure this frailty or risk for surgery but i believe that that's going to evolve over the next 5 to 10 years and it's going to change the how we take care of our patients and you know not how we identify patients who have what how we educate patients about risk how we select patients for surgery how we prepare patients for surgery and how we manage them when they have complications after surgery. Right,
0: right. I think it's a really interesting concept in the greater context of perioperative surgical care, uh, informed by enhanced recovery programs that look at systemizing care to where patients are getting best practices in a systematic way. And then frailty brings in this concept of still doing that, but then individualized care for perhaps the most vulnerable patients. To, to not just say, well, everyone coming in is going to get this enhanced recovery program and that's it. But we need to actually be looking at who's coming to the operating room and can we create a better safety net for some of these really frail folks.
1: Well, that's a great way to say it. It's appropriate variation, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. How does this fold into the greater concept of the perioperative home?
1: So so the perioperative home or the medical, medical-centered medical home was an idea that came out of the Affordable Care Act as well, that is that we would take responsibility for our patients, not just when they're in the hospital, not just when they're office, but we're going to share that responsibility in a medical home for the patient. There are multiple different medical homes, the primary care medical home, the oncology medical home, and then the idea of a perioperative medical home. Uh, and what does that look like? That is that we own that patient from the time we decide we're gonna do their operation until 90 days after their surgery or till they've recovered. And that we own that and it's, it's taking enhanced recovery to the next level and that incorporates things like frailty or some other screening tools so that you identify patients, you identify risks, and you mitigate those risks in the preoperative setting. So you, it's appropriate screening, it's system um, system-based, evidence-based perioperative care, like enhanced recovery or whatever you want to call that, fast track, enhanced recovery, enhanced recovery program, enhanced recovery after surgery. You implement those best practices and you don't just have to get them through the hospitalization, then you own them 90 days afterwards, you know, and you look at, did they go home, did they go to a nursing home, they went to a nursing home, could we have changed that or could we have anticipated and how do we get them from there back to their preoperative function. So it's really owning that procedure all the way through from identification of the patient to patient back to their preoperative status. And and when you
0: say we're gonna own that, uh, who, who's the the hospital, the surgeon, the anesthesia team, uh, multidisciplinary team that, that gets formed around these patients? Who's actually, are you just looking at outcome data and that discharge to 90 days, or are you still involved in their actual care and support of those patients?
1: Well, I think that the answer is yes, right? And they, and you know that there's a push in the, for perioperatives, the idea of somebody who is who is going to own this patient management. But I think the answer is yes that all of us, that just like with an enhanced recovery program, this isn't just the surgeon, um, as the captain of the ship. As the surgeon, maybe the team leader, um, or maybe the team leader is an anesthesiologist or an anesthetist or a nurse practitioner, but there's a team leader um, who is going to help across the spectrum of care. And I think that, that just like enhanced recovery, if we could own this as a system that takes care of yeah. patients, that is, I'm not gonna own as a surgeon, I'm not gonna own what happens in the prep center, but maybe I know they're gonna Alert me if I've not identified a frail patient, um, right. and then I'm not going to own what you do in the operating room because I I don't have the capacity to do that. I don't know the work that you do, um, but but we own it. But but I know that because the system is hardwired to do the right thing. That you're going to do the right thing, and we'll talk about it. Right, and we'll have a dialogue in the operating room about how we're going to manage this patient. So I think it is. A, it takes a whole group of people. And you know who owns that? I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it rolls out. I think right. as we look at um, the increased scrutiny for quality, and I know I've mentioned this a ton of times, but we're all on the hook for quality. You know that if our patients aren't doing well, we're all on the hook for that. So I hopefully we'll the, what we'll do is we'll gel as a team that owns this patient, but understand that we don't own them. Just when they start the operation, we own them across the whole yep. spectrum of care.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, do you have do you have just a couple minutes for a lightning round?
1: Yeah, lightning round. Yes. Yeah, sure. Are you ready?
0: All yeah. right, we're gonna we're gonna round off. Uh, I've enjoyed this so much. We've we've gone from quality analysis to a deep dive on ERAS, and now in this last podcast, we've touched on the topics of frailty and the perioperative home. While I've got you. Uh, I just wanted to close off with some with some interesting questions. So, what do you what do you want what do you want CRNAs and anesthesiologists to take away about ERAS?
1: I want them to understand the the that it's important that it's going to change patient care and that it will require some modifications of what they're currently doing.
0: What would you say to CRNAs, surgeons, anesthesiologists or providers that say, "Hey, I've already I've always done it this way." Uh, if it ain't broke, why why are we trying to fix it?
1: That's a hard one. You know, I think you that in that in life and in, in work and the practice of medicine, we should strive to continuously get better. And that you know, the way you trained fifteen years ago, there are additional practices. You know, what you do is valued, but we can we can work together to do a little bit better.
0: That's great. What do you find? as uh, the most interesting or motivating aspect about your work as a hepatobiliary surgeon?
1: It's, it's interesting. This transition to a leadership position has made me really question that. I think um, I value more than I realize. I value taking care of patients, whether it's in the operating room or my office. And some of the administrative work takes me away from that, and I miss that a lot. But I also value the ability to change something bigger than me, bigger than what I can do. This Enhanced Recovery Program is an opportunity, is is an example of something that I also enjoy that is, that's not doing surgery or taking care of patients, uh, which I really value and I miss some of that. It's uh, being able to do something outside of just what I can do with my own hands, but uh, work within a system to help patients that may not even be my patients. That's
0: interesting, yeah. Uh, and lastly, how do we shift healthcare care from uh, purely being about um, cost or even profit generation to moving to, to be really focused on quality and patient outcomes?
1: I think that, you, that what happens, it has to happen sometimes outside of us, that somebody outside of us tells us, well, this is important to us, and we're looking at it. And then you'll get some change just by the Hawthorne effect. You know, which is I will probably not paraphrasing this I'll paraphrase it but it's basically when you when you measure something uh, or you watch somebody do something quality improves yeah. just by the watching but that's not enough then you need to say okay now we're gonna penalize you or reward you um, if you if your quality flows falls below that and some of that has to be monetary but if it's only monetary, that doesn't work. Hmm. You have to, you have to. I think you have to trust that we're all in healthcare for the right reasons because yeah. we want to provide good care for our patients, and we believe that we're doing it. But when we fall short, you know, we have to want to change. And then if we don't change, there has to be a consequence to not doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Anything else you want to share uh, or stuff that we've missed on uh, quality ERAS? frailty, perioperative home.
1: I can't think of a single thing. This looks really <laughs> thorough. I think
0: we've we've done the deep dive. Uh, thank you so much for hanging in there and talking about all of this. It's been super interesting. I'm very excited to be a team member in the rollout of the Enhanced Recovery Program here at Maine Med, and I'm excited to see where it goes.
1: Now, and you as a leader um, in the system is really important. It, it is because you're doing the work and you have the respect of your peers um, that you and people like you that are embracing change and have the ear and respect of your coworkers are are going to help move this forward in a meaningful way and getting in like it's not just for your patients but for the patients and the broader system so thank you thanks for your time
0: thank you so much That's very nice of you to say